Howdy Huda Thunkers. This is the host of the Huda Thunkin Podcast, Zeb, coming at you. Episode 184 of the Huda Thunkin Podcast, titled War Poetry. Before we get into War Poetry, before we even get into the recommendation segment, I wanted to do a little update. Uh, rabies update. <laughs> Episode 178 of the Huda Thunkin Podcast was about the rabies virus, how it scares the hell out of me, and it should scare you too. I did it during October where I typically do scary stuff, and yeah, <laughs> rabies is truly scary to me, a real thing. Well, recently I played... Uh, I listened to episode 319 of This American Life podcast. It's a great podcast, by the way. You should check it out. It's great stories. But the first part of that episode, 319 of This American Life, was about a woman's personal experience with rabies. It was horrifying. Um, there were some very important points made on their pod that I didn't mention in my rabies podcast. So here we are. This American Life number 319 is called And the Call Was Coming from the Basement. That's the name of the episode if you want to check it out. But here's the main points that I didn't touch on on my pod that I think is important as a little PSA to you. If you are bitten by an animal with rabies, you have only 72 hours to get the rabies vaccine. That's not a lot of time. Don't think you can just sleep that night. Try tomorrow because this woman got bit on like a Friday night and a lot of places were closed over the weekend. A lot of places didn't take her seriously. And it was, oh my gosh, horrifying. Don't wait. Immediately try to get the vaccine. Call your call the hospital. Call everybody. Bats can bite you while you are sleeping without you even knowing and leave no mark, which could transfer rabies. So let's say you're sleeping. A bat with rabies gets into your room. It bites you. It flies out or it dies in the, in the room when you wake up. And you're like, huh. You don't feel it, you don't see a mark, yet you were given the rabies vaccine. So what do you do in that situation? So if you wake up with a crazy bat in the room you were sleeping in, catch the bat and get it tested. If you can't catch the bat, go to the hospital. Don't just let it go. That sounds excessive, but the rabies virus is horrible and the risk makes all of these precautions worthwhile. The risk of getting rabies makes all of this make sense. Some hospitals, like the one on This American Life's podcast episode, don't take rabies seriously. You know, don't let us a, a, a secretary or or a nurse or even a doctor tell you, hey, this is not that big of a deal. You know, call your animal control. You know, you have you have weeks to get this taken care of. You don't have weeks. Get it taken care of now. Be pushy if anyone pushes back. If you have rabies, you are and you don't take care of it, you're going to die a horrible death. So I thought that was important. I also recently gave myself a nightmare where I got rabies and it woke me up in a cold sweat. It was horrifying. I've been getting nightmares about it. Not all the time, but very every once in a while. I woke up, couldn't go back to sleep. It was horrible. So yeah, I might have given myself a nightmare-inducing fear over this podcast, researching a, a topic for this podcast. So yeah, I think out of all my scary uh, episodes, the ones I do in October's, um, that's one of my favorites. I really like doing that episode because it was terrifying and the stories behind it, horrifying. Now, on to my reckon recommendation segment, enough about rabies. This week, I recommend the movie Violent Night. That's V-I-O-L-I-E, sorry, V-I-O-L-E-N-T, violence, like violent night. Here's the plot. An elite team of mercenaries breaks into a family compound on Christmas Eve, taking everyone hostage inside. However, they aren't prepared for a surprise combatant. Santa Claus is on the grounds, and he's about to show why this Nick is no saint. Shannon and I sat down to watch a movie, and she asked me if we could watch a Christmas movie. I said, no. I groaned. I did. I whined. No. 
because it'll be some movie you and I have seen a billion times. It's going to bore the hell out of me and you, even though you think you want to watch it. But then we're clicking through and I saw Violent Night. I'm glad I chose it. It was mostly original. It's like an original movie. It kind of reminds me of like a super Christmassy Die Hard. I know technically the movie Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yes, but um, this one's even more so Christmassy. It was funny, action-packed, gave old Santa a badass backstory. And like I said, an original idea, mostly original idea. And that's something we sorely need in movies. So that's my recommendation segment. Now for the main event, War Poetry. Thanks for hanging in. It's been almost five minutes. Haven't even got to the main topic. <laughs> anyway, I was scrolling through Facebook Reels yesterday and came across Michael Sheen reading E. Gododin. It's an old Welsh poem from the medieval period about Welsh soldiers charging off the battle and how much emotion that elicited in the people that saw it. And so I went down a rabbit hole um, going thinking about war poetry. Seeing that Michael Sheen read E. Gododin made me think of another war poem I love, uh, Charge of the Light Brigade. It's so badass. It's all inspiring. So yeah, I started listening to some war poetry. I listened to a couple of them. Not a whole lot. I didn't spend hours and hours, but I did listen to a couple poems and, you know, I thought it'd be cool to do a pod on it. I'm not the biggest poetry fan. I just haven't spent much time studying or writing poetry. I don't dislike it, but it doesn't always hold my attention for too long. But I do remember having a distinct fondness for it as a small boy. Well, reading slash listening to these poems yesterday was a moving experience. I got emotional. They're not the most happy-go-lucky poems, but I think it's important. So sorry. I think it's important. Also, I like the idea of doing a poetry podcast <laughs> some of my favorite poems i don't know and they're not light and frilly pod poems these are badass war poems so i wanted to share some of the poems that i listened to yesterday with you along with some of the history behind them so give you a little backstory here are three poems that stuck out the most and if you are a poem poetry fan you've heard of these definitely these are very popular ones if you're not a poetry fan which i'm assuming most people aren't I was actually surprised last night, Shannon. I was like, you want to listen to some poetry? And she was like, no. I was like, really? You don't, not at all? No, I don't want to do that. I was like, okay. Anyway, if you're not a poetry fan, I picked these because they're popular. They got listen emotion from me and they listen emotion from a lot of people. So hopefully you'll enjoy these. The first is The Charge of the Light Brigade by uh, Lord Alfred Tennyson. Here we go. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them. Cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death. Into the mouth of hell rode the six hundred. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the guns there, the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the six hundred. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell while horse and hero fell, 
they that had fought so well came through the jaws of death back from the mouth of hell, and all that was left of them left of the six hundred. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made! All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade, the noble six hundred. There it is. That's the war poem. That if I hear some kind of poetry, I immediately think of that. Uh, it's so awe-inspiring. It's like it, it became world famous. It's a very famous poem, and you can see why. It's badass. It's honoring these men. And let's talk about the history behind it. What the heck was Lord Alfred Tennyson talking about when he wrote that poem? The poem is about a disastrous British cavalry charge. Cavalry means they're on horses against heavily defended Russian troops at the Battle of Balaklava in 1854 during the Crimean War that was 1853 to 56. The suicidal attack was made famous by Alfred or Lord Alfred Tennyson in his 1855 poem of the same name. Military historians and strategists continue to study the attack because it's a, it's a very important thing to underscore the importance of military intelligence and the clear chain of command and communication because that's what broke down here. Here I got a little um, analysis, a little backstory of the actual war and the poet, the poet himself from the British literature wiki. For... Or the poem recounts an assault by a brigade, brigade of British cavalry under the command of Lord James Thomas Brudenell, Earl of Cardigan, which cost the lives of 113 men and injured 143 others. Back then, injury a lot more serious than now. The charge took place at the Battle of Balaclava during British Britain's war with Russia in the Crimea in the mid-19th century. The charge was regarded as one of the most heroic yet futile assaults in British military history and was instantly the subject of speculation back home. The Crimean War itself, which lasted from 53 to 56 in the 1800s, was an example of a war caused entirely by the imperialistic agenda of the major powers involved. I'm going to cut through some of this here and summarize some of this, but basically the Turkish or the then the Ottoman Empire was declining. Tsar Nicholas I of Russia was like, hey, that's going to collapse. I want to get my territories from the Balkans. I want to get my piece of the pie when this empire collapses. But the British and French troops were like, no, we also have interest in the area. We're not going to let the Russians come in and take what they want. So they started backing the uh, the Turkish empire. And so they did. They aided the Turks. Although the war would conclude with a compromising treaty in 1856, the three years of fighting exposed the British army as ill-equipped, disorganized, exposed to the Russian army as backward and inferior. So they didn't look good, the Brits. Tennyson, the poet, like many other Brits at the time, was inspired by the tale of the altruistic sacrifice on the part of the Light Brigade. Their action was seen as a defining example of honor and bravery in the face of hopelessness. Their charge a result of misinformation. That's it. Miscommunication on the part of British intelligence. Both illuminated the British military's shortcomings and inspired all those around them. This is precisely what Tennyson attempts to capture in charge of the Light Brigade. The poem was written both as a commemoration to the soldiers and as a testament to the horrors of war. Tennyson was known to have two contrasting styles in his writing. He wrote pieces like the Light Brigade, short period reflection that he wrote immediately after it happened in the throes of emotion. And on the other hand, he wrote epics like the, Ill the Idols of the King, or, where he would write things over long periods of time, meticulously picking out each word. Those two contrasting styles made themselves evident in this poetry, The Light Brigade. It's like the best of his 
two different kinds of works. It's said to have been written immediately upon hearing the news of the attack. Now, these are my words. The Light Brigade were given an order to charge down a valley toward a heavily defended Russian position. Suicide. It was a suicide mission. They knew it was suicide, and they knew it didn't make any sense, at least not from their perspective. They were told to charge with cannons firing from literally all directions at them. The order came, and they had swords. <laughs> the order came from a complete miscommunication from their superior officers. Had their command known what was going on, no one would have given the Light Brigade their death order, but when they got the order, they just obeyed blindly because they're soldiers and that's what they do. Lines from the poem, someone had blundered, there's not to reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die into the valley of death rode the 600. That part sums up the historical, you know, what's going on with the actual Light Brigade, what happened to them. Someone blundered, they said, we're not going to think about it. We're not going to ask questions. We're just going to do it, and we're going to die doing it. I love this poem, and so do many people. It's one of the most famous poems out there, and while it sounds cool and incites bravery and, and awe and patriotism, the other blaring perspective is that these men died for nothing. Nothing. While the charge of the Light Brigade hints at the folly and the horrors of war, it ultimately shines upon the epicness of war. Tennyson ultimately sells war as like a glory trip in the charge of the Light Brigade. There is a hint at uh, someone blundered. These guys died for nothing. But for the most part, he's reading about, he's telling about the epicness of it. But that's not the case of the rest of the, this episode's poems. They didn't just hint at the horrors of war. It was all about the horrors of war. The next poem is Dolce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. I'm going to read this poem and then another of his, and that's going to be the end of the episode because we're already 13 minutes in, but Dolce et Decorum S by Wilfred Owen. Bent double like old beggars under sacks. Knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and toward our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even, to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing, writhing, writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs. Obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest. The children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. Now, what the heck was that about? It was World War I. Wilfred Owen was in World War I. He was on the front lines. That Latin at the end, dolce et decorum est pro patria mori, 
It's the old lie, as Owen describes it. It is a quotation from the odes of the Roman poet Horace, in which it is claimed that, quote, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. That is what Wilfred Owen is saying is the lie. This was a poem written during World War I, originally published in 1920, published posthumously. Wilfred died. <laughs> he enlisted in 1915 and by 1916 was on the front lines. He wrote in 1918 that he had two reasons for joining the war. Quote, I came out in order to help these boys directly by leading them, as well as an officer can indirectly by watching their suffering, that I may speak of them as well as a pleader can. So he wanted to document what was happening. He wanted to give a voice to his fellow fellow comrades, anyone to fight alongside them. On April 1st, 1917, near the town of St. Quentin Owen, led his platoon through an artillery barrage to the German trenches, only to discover when they arrived that the enemy had already withdrawn. Severely shaken and disoriented by the bombardment, Owen barely avoided being hit by an exploding shell and returned to his base camp confused and stammering. A doctor diagnosed shell shock, a new term used to describe the physical and or psychological damage suffered by soldiers in combat. Though his commanding officer was skeptical, Owen was sent to a French hospital and subsequently returned to Britain, where he was checked into the Craig Lockhart War Hospital for neurasthenic officers. Owen's time at Craig Lockhart, one of the most famous hospitals used to treat victims of shell shock, coincided with that of his great friend and fellow poet, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, who became a major influence on his work. After their treatment, both men returned to active service in France. Owen himself was a casualty of that senseless war. On November 4th, 1918, just one week before the armistice was declared ending World War I, the British poet Wilfred Owen was killed in action. He was shot by a German machine gunner during an unsuccessful British attempt to bridge the Sambre Canal near the French village of Ors. In his hometown of Shrewsbury, near the Welsh border, his mother did not receive the telegraph news of her son's death until the fighting had ended. Now celebrated as one of the greatest English poets of the 20th century, Owen's war poems were popularized in the 1960s, 60s when Benjamin Britten uh, included nine of them in his War Requiem, dedicated to the four friends who had been killed in World War II. The most famous of them, Anthem for Doomed Youth, is not only a memorial to those who died in the Great War of 1914 to 1919, but a classic and timeless re representation of the waste and sacrifice of war. And here's that other poem by Wilfred Owen, Anthem for Doomed Youth. What passing bells for these who die as cattle. Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, no bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to, to speed them all? not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes, shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. Their flowers, the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. On that November day, when Owens was gunned down in the war he found so horrifying, 
he was only 25 years old. Those words, that horror that he describes, seeing someone die from gas in World War I, watching their eyes still twitch as they threw him on the cart where they threw dead bodies. He was 25. I'm going to be 30 in a couple weeks. It just seems so young, such a waste. He, he led men in World War I. It's not like he was just some foot soldier. He was an officer, and he was only 25. So, yeah, got a little emotional yesterday listening and reading war poetry. I was going to do a different subject, but it just caught my attention, and I had to do an episode on it. I think it would benefit all of us to read some some poetry. Maybe yours would be a little bit more lighthearted <laughs> than what I'm into. But, <laughs> but, yeah, read some poetry and read poetry about whatever you like. What I recommend you do. Thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Like I said, not a very cheerful episode, but thanks for listening. Until next week. Mm-hmm.